This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Onion, The Young Turks, Lee Camp, John Mill, Media Matters, and Counterspend. And a note on health and safety, this episode poses a significant choking hazard due to surprising and revolting economic information contained within. Eating while listening is not recommended. Today, if you make enough money for the firm and are not currently an axe murderer, you will be promoted into a position of influence. That was from a very public resignation letter from one Greg Smith. He used a scathing op-ed in the New York Times to quit his job at what company? Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, indeed. Very good. Mr. Smith decided to let his bosses know he was leaving by publishing this op-ed in the Times. He, he said all Goldman Sachs cared about was making money. He also expressed <laughs> shock and dismay that fish swam and mm-hmm. birds flew. <laughs> he said that the company only cares about profits. What did he think <laughs> Goldman Sachs would be interested in? Making artisanal cheeses? <laughs> so people who don't like Wall Street reacted to this by saying, I told you so, and Wall Street insiders said that You know, Mr. Smith was disgruntled because he didn't get the bonus or promotion he deserved. And axe murderers were upset because they were all hoping for a career in finance. It's like, why are we disqualified? We have that can-kill attitude, so important in today's market. (laughs) This is our favorite thing. In his op-ed, Mr. Smith listed his achievements so as to make himself more credible. (laughs) And one of them was, quote, winning a bronze medal for table tennis at the Maccabeah Games in Israel, known as the Jewish Olympics, unquote. That, of course, stopped the critics in their tracks. They were going to impugn his credibility. But wait, this guy beat a bunch of Jews at ping pong. Basically, he has the same unimpeachable character as my Uncle Morty. A bronze. Get a bronze. Yeah. He's the third best Jewish ping pong yeah, player. <laughs> in the world. Well, he lost to your Uncle Morty in the semis. Uh, now have scientific proof that the wealthy are more likely to lie, cheat, maybe not steal, but lie and cheat. This according to a new research study by a PhD candidate in psychology at the University of California. They did uh, a couple of studies, according to uh, Bloomberg News, of how the upper class tend uh, to behave in certain circumstances. In one test, a candy test, 129 undergraduates were manipulated to view themselves as either wealthy or poor. Then they were uh, presented with a jar of individually wrapped candy. 
Now, I, I want to just say at this point, it's actually not wrong to take candy from babies because babies should not be eating candy. They don't have teeth a lot of times, small pieces of candy they can choke on. That's actually a good altruistic, if not also self-benefiting, I guess, initiative. So they were presented with a jar of individually wrapped candy, which researchers said would go to children in a nearby lab, though they could take some if they wanted. And the children would just get less. The undergraduates believing themselves to be upper income took more than those believing themselves to be low income, the study found. And it wasn't just a uh, candy experiment. Now, they used to say the upper class, as defined by the study, were more likely to break the law while driving, uh, more likely uh, to take candy from children. They were more likely to lie in negotiations, cheat to raise their odds to winning a prize, and endorse unethical behavior at work. <laughs> The uh, researchers say uh, it's important to teach um, people ethics. It's not that the rich are innately bad, uh, but as you rise in the ranks, I guess, of income, whether as a person or a non-human primate, <laughs> you become more self-focused. So uh, the wealthy should feel comforted that um, they share these attributes with their ape cousins as well. Now, previous research has shown that students in economic classes are more likely to describe greed as a good thing. And so uh, there is a sense that this is not only self-selective in some respects, but also the wealthier you become, the more insulated and essentially inward-looking you become. One experiment invited 195 adults recruited using a Craigslist to play a game in which a computer rolled dice for a chance to win a $50 gift certificate. The numbers that each participant rolled were the same, so the game was rigged. But anyone self-reporting a total higher than 12 was lying about their score. Those in the wealthier groups were found to be more likely to lie about their score. The theory that, uh, one of the theories that this researcher has is that those in, uh, who are less wealthy tend to cheat less because they're more reliant on their community to get by and therefore feel more constrained by community norms. Does that sound familiar to you? Is there any reason, is there any question as to why Mitt Romney is doing better among voters who earn more than $200,000 a year now? And this dude is like talking about people wearing ponchos going, <laughs> nice, nice jacket. There were traffic tests and about one-third of drivers in higher-status cars 
cut off other drivers at an intersection watched by the research about double those in less costly cars. And additionally, almost half of the more expensive cars didn't yield to pedestrians uh, who entered the crosswalk. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Don't leave your home, because you know what? When those companies say they have your mortgage, unless you have a lawyer that can put his finger or her finger on that mortgage, you don't have that mortgage. And you're going to find they can't find the paper up there on Wall Street. So I say to the American people, you'll be squatters in your own homes. Don't you leave. Existential point. You live somewhere. Maybe you live in a city or a town or in an unincorporated area like I grew up in. But you live somewhere. And wherever you live, the land you live on, literally the ground under your feet, is owned by someone or some corporation or, or maybe a government. One of the first things Americans did as citizens was set up public registries to keep track of who owns which land. If you and your neighbor disagree about a fence one he wants to build, there should be an empirical answer as to which of you is right and where that fence can go. And the answer to where that fence can go is in books like these. They tell us who owns what and how the land in our towns is bought and sold, how it is mortgaged and paid for or not. This is important stuff. And the public record is a clear thing, uh, or it should be, when the system works right. I want you to meet Lori Lanier. Lori Lanier lives in Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, this is her here, uh, driving. Lori showed our producer, Laura Conaway, around Greensboro, North Carolina this week. Greensboro is a town of not quite 300,000 people. It's in central North Carolina, sort of between Raleigh and Winston-Salem. She drove us through her neighborhood to one particular house where she was friendly with the owner. Uh, you can see that it's a normal house in a normal neighborhood. It's not far from the big university in town. Lori Lanier works in real estate in this neighborhood. Uh, in this neighborhood, and, and she says they are going through a new round of foreclosures there now. She says there's been actually a couple of suicides in families that have lost their homes. The house that Lori wants to show us, as you can see, is boarded up. Being abandoned takes a toll on a house. On the door, there's a new sign that tells you to call the bank if you have any questions. If this property is not vacant, please call your mortgage servicer immediately. Wow. Doesn't have a... Okay, we got a date, 319. So they were just here. Just yeah, three this days is new ago. to me. I mean, this is new to me. Um, please call Wells Fargo. The owner of that particular house ended up in the newspapers last month after he got into a 15-hour standoff with police. Uh, he was a chiropractor, by all accounts a regular guy, and now you can direct inquiries about his house to Wells Fargo. They've got his house now. 
Stories like that drew Lori Lanier to go to Occupy Greensboro last week. The group held a big event in the old movie theater downtown, a big event about foreclosures, and 400 people showed up, a few of them telling their stories about losing homes. That's happening all over the country, but there's not that many places where you can talk personally about the fact that it's happening. It can be not just upsetting, but embarrassing. You can feel like you're the only one. That night last week, a couple of occupiers screened a movie that they made to try to explain all the foreclosures and why this is a crisis. They're trying out new ways of explaining, new ways of acting out how the banks wrecked the economy and document mills and forged signatures, how the banks lured people into loans they couldn't afford and loans that didn't make sense, how they traded those loans, those everyday houses, like they were casino chips. They're looking for new ways to help the public understand what happened when all this happened. They're also looking for new things to do about it here and across the country. In Greensboro, the, the occupiers have started formal training for volunteers, uh, like Lori Lanier, to examine the documents in new foreclosures, to look for signs that the bank has not got the right to kick that particular family out onto the street. You'll be trained to seek out evidence of fraud, including robo-signing. If the documents don't hold up to scrutiny, then the bank might not be able to foreclose, or the family might at least be able to get into a better position to negotiate an extension or a new payment plan or something. Already, Occupy Greensboro filled up its first fraud detection training. 35 regular Americans, just citizens, saying they are ready to dive into records at the county clerk's office to help some homeowner they maybe don't even know. And more North Carolina counties are asking for classes like this, too. Going after the banks by going through their paperwork turns out to be not that hard to do. Regular people can do it with a little training. And people want to do it. It's popular. People want to take these trainings and learn how to do this thing. It kind of makes you a mix between a geek and a savior house superhero. And the popularity of doing this, though, is in part because it works. These folks diving into bank records for signs of mortgage fraud, it is looking more and more like they may really be onto something. This is Jeff Thigpen in his office in Greensboro, North Carolina. He's the elected county register of deeds, which under normal circumstances is one of the most humble, little-noticed jobs in government, right? Jeff Thigpen's got Greensboro records going back to 1771. If you ask him, he will pull down the old books and show them to you. All this, look, all this documentation of who owns what, signed by actual humans using their real names and old-fashioned ink in the 1700s, the records showing who owns what, going back as long as the government exists, basically. It's who owns what land and who owes who money for it. But Jeff, this county register, says he cannot be sure anymore who owns what in Greensboro or who owes whom, or who has the right to kick anybody out of their house and into the street for not paying. Jeff Thigpen's little county register office in North Carolina went back through a few years of records, and they found, just for a few years, thousands of documents filed by big banks and mortgage companies in these document mills. Thousands of documents that Jeff Thigpen says look to him like forgeries. Like the companies that filed them just did not care. I can't make up my mind as to whether or not they're walking over me or they're just completely ignoring me, you know. And both are pretty humiliating, you know. Uh, it's just kind of take your pick, which one is it? And um, Except that now you can sue. Yes, we can sue. Last week, Jeff Thigpen's little county office took more than two dozen big banks and mortgage companies to court. It's Jeff versus Bank of America. Jeff versus Wells Fargo. He says they wrecked 250 years of fair dealing in his county, and it's his job to fix it. Quote, this lawsuit seeks to have defendants clean up the mess they created. 
That's from paragraph one. It is hard to put a legal case more plainly than that. Jeff, Jeff Thigpen wants, wants the court to appoint an investigator to go through the documents on people's houses, to find the mistakes and to set things right. He wants the banks to clean up the mess he says they have made for his office. The mess they have made in his county by making a mockery of the legal paperwork that you need to prove you own something in America. He says until the banks do that, the people of his county cannot buy and sell property with any real confidence about who owns it. The records, he said, have been, been that corrupted by the banks. And, he says, the families kicked out of their homes, the bank documents that justified that, some of those documents, he says, may have been fraud. Public recording offices are part of our democracy and the rule of law, and the laws that govern them need to be respected. And if you don't respect that, then why, why, why am I any better than Wikipedia? I mean, and if that's the case, Wikipedia would be better than me. You know. Explain that. Well, I mean, at least on Wikipedia, you'll have multiple people trying to correct what's going on and get the story right. All we would be doing would be logging in information signed by people four to 15 different times with no verification, and then people could go out and use it for what? They'd have the legal force of Wikipedia <laughs> through my office. You know, I mean, it's basically, if you don't get public recording offices right, you don't get the judicial system right. I mean, it's if these documents are certified for my office and used in court proceedings, if they are not right, it is a fraud on the court system, baby. Jeff Thigpen says he has already found about three dozen foreclosures in Greensboro, three dozen, where he now considers the documents that justified those foreclosures to be seriously in question. Three dozen Greensboro families put out on the street who maybe should not have been. What has happened in Jeff's office, this situation with thousands of documents that he says appear to have stuff missing or forged signatures, this same situation quite likely exists in every county in the United States. And if you look around, you will now see that lawsuits like this Greensboro one are popping up in Ohio and in Kentucky and in Oklahoma and in Massachusetts with the promises of more to come. So far, so far these clerks who are suing have been losing these cases. But if these lowly clerks start winning, and it looks like they might, then this becomes a very big deal because there are thousands of these clerks. There are thousands of counties. There are thousands of people like Jeff Thigpen out there who have these responsibilities and take them seriously. And with the occupiers and the volunteers and the families being foreclosed on and the county clerks and the courts all going through the records, the banks may start losing for what they did to those records on the way to doing what they did to what used to be our economy. If the clerks start winning, we might start proving that the early warnings were right, like Marcy Kaptur back in the dark winter of 2009 when she told Americans to be squatters in their own homes. Because while the banks were getting rich trading and gambling on your houses, they did not bother doing the work to prove who owned anything or who owed anything for that matter. At the time she made it, that argument from Marcy Kaptur sounded revolutionary and impassioned. It was a manifesto from the populist fringe. That argument is no longer fringy. Now it is a day's work in the Greensboro County Registrar's Office, getting the basic paperwork of who owns what in this country back in good order again, like we have prioritized since the 1700s. The banks are scared of this, and they ought to be. They have been trying to work out deals to avoid responsibility for what they did at the federal level and at the state level. They are trying to get themselves off this hook. I would too if I were them. But the Jeff Thigpens of the world and the Occupy Greensboro's of the world and the Lori Lanier's of the world are trying to get American families off of that hook first. And they might win on this, and it's a big deal.
It's the Onion Radio News. Stock analysts are confused and frightened by a bore market. Investors and analysts on Wall Street fled in terror after being spooked by the rare but deadly bore market that reared its head at yesterday's closing bell. Analyst Christopher Matson spoke from an emergency shelter on 10th Avenue. This market is highly unpredictable. Tusked and savage and covered with coarse, bristly hair. I didn't know if I should buy, sell, or shoot. Matson says he hopes stocks will someday soon perform again, as they did two weeks ago, when brokers were soothed by the graceful movements of a swan market. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News, online at theonion.com. Harold Meyerson has a, a good article in the Washington Post where he's quoting the work of the economist Emmanuel Says, who, who we have alluded to in the past. But he gave good context to it. And uh, we've talked about how much the top 1% are getting. Like Even in the economic recovery, uh, the top 1% are getting most of the money. We've told you that before. But here's some interesting context to it. So in the early 1990s, the top 1% captured 45% of the income growth when our economy was improving. Remember, we had a little bit of a recession, we're coming out of the recession, and you know what, the top 1% get 45% of the gains. Now that seems gigantic proportion, but at least 99% of us were getting a little over half. Well, the next time we had a, a, a bust was the dot-com bust in the early 2000s. But when we uh, did the economic recovery from there, who benefited? Well, the top 1% wound up getting 65% of the income growth when we rebounded. Wow, it got to be significantly larger. Jesus, that's nearly two-thirds, obviously. Well, what happened after this recession, when we started a rebound in 2010, how much did the top 1% get of that growth? 93%. The system has gotten so much worse over time that the top 1% are getting almost all of the extra gains. Any benefit of the, econo uh, the economy recovering is going straight to the richest people in the country. It's because we haven't done anything to fix this broken system. For 30 years, Republicans and conservatives have been breaking the system, meaning that they are rigging the rules in favor of certain corporations so that those corporations can crush small businesses, can crush their competition, get all the tax loopholes so they don't even have to pay taxes, so that they get subsidies like the oil companies, etc. Rigging the rules so that you have unfair competition, so that it is not a free market. And then lowering taxes for the rich and the corporations so that they have even more breaks and more breaks. And what is the result of that? Well, obviously, the money is flowing to the top. It is not trickling down to the rest of us. That is a lie. 
and unfortunately, we have not changed anything in that system. So the next time there's a, you know, an economic crash, once again, we will suffer. And if we ever recover, again, the very richest people will get even a bigger percentage of that recovery. We have to fix the underlying problems, which is this gross inequality that we have. We don't have free competition. Our politicians are bought by the corporations and by the rich. Now, to give you a sense of how much the middle class is getting crushed, back in 1968, 28% of the workers in this country were in unions. At that time, 53% of the income in the country went to the middle class. Look, again, it could be higher, but hey, that's not bad. At least we're hanging in there. Well, now in 2010, unions are way down. They're at 11.9%, so almost half of what they used to be. No, way less than half they, than they used to be. And so what happened to the middle class? It's down to only 46.5% of the income in the country. It means that, you know, it's, there's many different uh, you know, facts that go into that between 1968 and 2010, including the, you know, the loopholes that are put in, including the lower taxes on the rich, including all the ways that they rigged the game. But one of the factors is that the unions that were supposed to watch out for the middle class and the average guy and the blue-collar worker, well, when they got whittled down, nobody looked out for you. And, I, and I'm not a huge defender of the unions, no matter what the circumstances are, no. But as you can see, uh, when you look at the overall picture, well, they helped the middle class in the past, and now without them, the middle class is suffering because of that and other factors. Now, of course, what the Republicans always tell you is, no, 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 no. No, lower taxes isn't to help the rich. No, lower taxes to help you. Because if we lower taxes on the rich, well, then we create more jobs and the economy gets better. Here's one of many problems with that. Under Clinton, we raised taxes. And what happened? In his eight years, we created over 23 million jobs. Under George Bush, we dramatically cut taxes on the rich. And what happened? We only created three million jobs. And by the way, by the way a lot of which were immediately lost in the recession that he created. So in the first year of Obama, a lot of those jobs were lost anyway because he had created this catastrophic recession. But even if you give him the benefit of the doubt and say three million, Bill Clinton, who raised taxes, literally created 20 million more jobs than George Bush, who lowered taxes. If you give them all of the benefit of the doubt, at the very least, the whole idea of cutting taxes was to create more jobs. Did they create more jobs? Hell no. They created 20 million less jobs. Cutting taxes for the rich isn't for the benefit of the rest of us. It's for the benefit of the rich, which is the most obvious thing in the world. But everybody in Washington has been drinking this Kool-Aid on purpose and getting you to drink it because they get paid by the rich. Those politicians are bought and corrupt. So they just come to you and they go, oh, drink up, drink up. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, tax cuts for the rich is really going to help you. <laughs> As, of course, 93% of the benefit goes to the top 1%. It's been a lie all along. Drink the water, drink it down. This time I know I'm bound to spit it back up. 
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Last week, the states agreed with Attorney General Eric Holder on a settlement with the big banks for $25 billion, rather than taking the big banks to court for the douchebag-bursting amount of foreclosure fraud that has gone on. This amounts to roughly $2,000 per homeowner who was foreclosed on. Imagine you get illegally kicked out of your home, your life turned upside down by gangsters wearing nice shoes and smiles. Then when the thugs get caught, they give you a shiny $2,000 to shut you up and go away. How happy would you be? Someone got a million dollars just for dumping McDonald's coffee in her lap and you get two grand for having your home stolen? That's like someone stealing your car and then offering to give you your hubcap back. But more importantly, why the is she going to McDonald's for coffee in the first place? Going to McDonald's for coffee is like going to a crack whore for help on a crossword puzzle. You don't get what you came for and you probably end up with a disease. Or, in this case, burning your crotch off. But this deal with the banks isn't the point. For the past many months, the Federal Reserve has been giving interest-free money to those banks and the banks have not been loaning it out. They've just been hoarding it and making money from it. So the Fed pumps these banks full of money, our money, like Santorum pumping whatever woodland creature he's captured tonight. The banks then make money on our money and go on to pay a ridiculously low amount for the fraud they've perpetrated on millions of homeowners. Fun game, isn't it? I mean, not as fun as a game of Twister with a dozen poisonous snakes on a fire ant hill, but still, still fun. But that's not really the point either. The point is, we're now letting the media and the country stop talking about the continued unfettered assault on a sustainable model for this world. We need to be able to multitask, damn it. If Rachel Ray can cook four things at once, then we can talk about four things at once. We have to be able to tell the GOP that they can take a warm to the eye before we'll let them continue their shock and awe campaign on women's rights and at the same time we need to keep battling for a government that's not owned by Wall Street and a Wall Street that doesn't piss all over everything and then charge us to clean it up. A lot of people want to believe that Occupy is over. A lot of people want to believe that Occupy is over. And we're so sorry to disappoint those people, but we're just lacing up our shoes, training in the off-season, and now some of us have 2,000 shiny dollars from the banks to buy bigger and better torches and pitchforks. You should see the Pitchfork 4G. It's badass. We'd like to thank the Prosperity was round the corner. The cozy cottage went for two. In this new world, we 
When my aunt found out I'm a liberal, she said, "Isn't that just disgusting?" To her credit, she is no religion-soaked right-wing crazy, and her son, my cousin, who shares the day of my birth, grew up normal and has a beautiful American-style family. Me, although I'm completely faithful to the woman in my life, I've always been the radical in my family, who are like many Americans most of the time. This is John Mill, and I love my family, even while differing with them over religion and politics. Since I'm the odd fish in the mainstream of my family, I often find myself wondering how I turned out so differently from my conventionally religious, politically conservative clan. I think it's because I see things as, for example, Jill W. Clausen sees them in her excellent March 18th essay, Five Words and Phrases Democrats Should Never Say Again. Where most Americans see creeping socialism in government programs that help the poor and middle class, I see not entitlements but earned benefits. Where some Americans think it's okay for most of the wealth in this country to accumulate at the top one percent, I see a reverse redistribution of wealth, kind of a Robin Hood who takes from the poor and gives to the rich. Where some Americans are outraged that employment-based health insurance plans are now required to cover things like contraception for women, I think such employee-earned benefits should cover what the employee wants. It's no more forcing employers to buy contraception than it is forcing them to buy your groceries or pay your mortgage. While some Americans think government spends too much money on public works projects, I see investments in America. Investments that make America worth living in, and yes, working and doing business in, and where some Americans are not bothered at all with the influence wealthy, well-connected corporations have over our political system, I see an unelected corporate government buying our democratic system and subverting the interests and the will of American citizens. The assault continues. House Budget Committee Chairman Paul Ryan, a Wisconsin Republican, said on Tuesday that he wants Congress to overhaul food stamps and other safety net programs, taking the high moral ground that we don't want to turn the safety net into a hammock that lulls able-bodied people to lives of dependency and complacency, that drains them of their will and their incentive to make the most of their lives. Here again, I see it a little differently, so let's turn it around. I say we should stop the entitlement reform for the bottom 99 percent until we institute entitlement reform for the top one percent. If we can afford to bail out the banks who crashed the American economy with impunity, if we can afford to give the oil industry, which makes enormous profits, over 60 billion dollars in subsidies, while nickel and diming alternative energy and telling us it costs too much. If we can afford disastrous and ultimately pointless military adventures in Iraq and Afghanistan, if we can afford an anti-drug war that is deadly to not just human lives but to civil liberties and a national security state that makes a mockery of democracy, then why can't we afford the earned benefits Americans pay for and rely on? There was a 1931 song in which the lyric, written by Yip Harburg, goes in part. Once I built a railroad, I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Eighty years later, brother, can you spare a dime has gained a new currency. If you read, watch, and listen to only the mainstream media, you might think the Occupy movement have packed up their tents and gone home. You'd be wrong. 
they're still out there, still protesting, still getting beaten, sprayed, and arrested. The anger in the land, represented by the protests across the country, starting as Occupy Wall Street, but known collectively as the Occupy Movement, have awakened Americans to the broken political and financial system in the United States. It is, demonstrably, a system that does not work, except for a privileged few. The rest of us wait on the cruel joke of a tinkle-down economics. Some Americans who go to church can even hear pastors defending the divine right of our corporate kings. Isn't that just disgusting? Here's my modest proposal. And it's so simple, even viewers of Fox News, who are less informed than the uninformed, will understand it. Not one dime. Not one dime cut from our earned benefits until all corporate welfare ends. Not one dime cut from social programs until the power of the 99% becomes proportionate to the numbers of the 99%. Not one dime cut from earned benefits until the rest of us get back the country we built with our sweat and paid for with our lives. Let's make it a bumper sticker. Not one dime. I'm talking not just about freedom and liberty for all, but justice for all as well. I say not one dime cut from social programs until tax-exempt churches and tax-avoiding corporations pay their fair share. Now... If I can just convince my family. So, in the beginning there was a hum from a poet whose pulse fell. Drum, drum, drum. He would perform reason all to one day hear the voice call. Drum, drum, drum. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Republicans are always talking about, oh my God, it's so important to listen to religious leaders. And in fact, they had all the religious leaders talking about contraception. That's the, actually the hearings that uh, um, Sandra Fluck was uh, kept out of. Uh, Daryl Issa had hearings, all these religious leaders, and of course they kept talking about Catholic bishops and what they thought was important for religious liberty in this country and, and protecting those religious values. Well, what's interesting is that of course when it comes to the budget, the Republicans don't give a damn what religious people think. Of course! So a number of religious folks have uh, weighed in on Paul Ryan's uh, latest Republican budget that slashes the government by about $5 trillion dollars. Uh, Michael Hirsch said on the current program on the Young Turks, uh, if the, you do the math, it actually leaves almost nothing in the budget other than defense. <laughs> it's absurd. Okay, it would wipe out the whole discretionary budget and would slash Medicaid, Medicare, etc. So Bishop uh, Gene Robinson says, the Ryan budget robs the poor, the marginalized, and the vulnerable of the safety net so integral to their survival. And, of course, the Republican Party says, Bishops, who cares? Catholics, why would we listen to those guys? <laughs> Help the poor, what are you, crazy? No, 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 religious people in this country are not important. 
Well, uh, Bishop Robinson continues, by any measure of civility and regard for one's neighbor, it is an immoral disaster. The Republican budget proposal is an immoral disaster. Come on, why don't we have hearings about it? Daryl Issa, where are you? Where are all the hearings about how much we care about Catholic bishops and what they think? You know, the Conference of Bishops has written letters to the Republicans saying don't cut these very vital programs. So that's the whole conference. So where are our hearings? Oh, there's no hearings on that. Oh, that's really weird. Turns out you only care about religion when it's to hurt people and when it's to take away people's rights. When it's actually help people, oh, you have no interest in what these guys have to say. You know, and it's all the different religions. So Rabbi Jackie Moline also said that it's immoral and unconscionable. And then uh, Father Thomas Kelly, a Catholic priest and a constituent of Ryan's, had this to say, quote, As a constituent of Congressman Ryan and a Catholic priest, I'm disappointed by his cruel budget plan and outraged that he defends it on moral grounds. Ryan is a Catholic and he knows that justice for the poor and economic fairness are core elements of our church's social teaching. It's shameful that he disregarded these principles in his budget. Where are the bishops? Come on, let's go. Where are our hearings? Let's get the bishops up on Capitol Hill. Oh no, you don't want to hear from them now. Because they're actually doing what Jesus told them to do. Protect the poor. So when they actually listen to the Bible, when they actually listen to Jesus' teachings, you don't like religion at all, do you, Republicans? You hate religion. You totally disregard it. What happened to uh, values? What happened to uh, marrying church and state? Oh, no, when it's to help others. No, no, no. You have no interest in that. What these bishops didn't understand is that Paul Ryan and the Republican Party had to cut the budget by $5 trillion. How else could they give away $4 trillion in tax cuts to the rich? And, of course, you remember the very famous Bible verse saying how you shall deliver even more and more to the rich. What was the verse again? Oh, right, that doesn't exist. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. Fox News figures are gushing over Republican Congressman Paul Ryan and his latest budget plan. According to the Washington Post's Ezra Klein, the proposal would fund trillions of dollars in tax cuts by cutting deeply into health care programs and income supports for the poor. Or as Fox's Brian Kilmeade would say, i got to give uh, Paul Ryan a C for courage. And right. Dave Camp has a C in his last name. Or I'm not going to give it to him. But together, they went out and put together a forward-leaning uh, a forward-leaning uh, budget proposal, which I'm sure is going to get people on the other side saying, look how mean they are and, and look how partisan they are. Bill Hemmer, an anchor for the supposedly straight news part of the Fox network, had this to say. I think what happened yesterday is going to go down as the single most important event in government history in our lifetimes. And that is when Paul Ryan came out with his budget plan. For the 80% of you who listen to this program via the enhanced version of the show which supports chapter markers, the following clip will include visual elements. Something happened in Washington, D.C. today that at the surface level was the most banal, the most run-of-the-mill thing in the entire universe. It was the most expected, least surprising thing, and it will probably appear on page A19 of tomorrow's newspaper. Today in Washington, the United States Senate rejected an attempt to end oil industry subsidies. Why wasn't that surprising? Because President Obama was for ending those oil subsidies, so were Democrats in the Senate, but the Republicans filibustered, and so it died. 
That three-bullet-point explanation can basically be said about everything that has happened in Washington since 2010, more or less. But if you just think about it for a second, in this particular case, if you don't accept it at face value and you instead take this case, hold it up to the light and turn it 15 degrees to see it at a new angle, it is downright bizarre that this happened. It is a true mystery that at a time when deficit scaremongering rules the beltway and fiscal probity is the flavor of the month, when nobody likes the oil companies, the Democrats have a majority in the Senate and a president in the White House, they weren't able to pluck this eminently low-hanging fruit. It is a mystery, a classic Washington caper. Why does this particular piece of policy persist? There's a few possible reasons. Maybe it's because this is a popular piece of policy, right? Nope, that can't be it. The NBC News polled on the issue last year and found that 74% of Americans, 74% would do, like to do away with this policy. Three quarters of Americans would be in favor of eliminating tax subsidies for the oil and gas industries. And every year, Gallup polls people on how they feel about various industries in this country. And out of the 25 industries they polled on last year, the oil and gas industry came in 24th place in terms of favorability. Okay, so the oil and gas industry is not very popular. The policy itself is not very popular. Well, then maybe it's the case that subsidizing the oil and gas industry is a good piece of policy. It might be unpopular, but economists everywhere recognize it is fundamentally sound. But that's not it either. Economists on the left have long argued for the elimination of oil subsidies. And here's the view from the right. Eliminating oil subsidies. Two cheers for President Obama. That's from the Libertarian Cato Institute. This from the Conservative Heritage Foundation, quote, ending all energy subsidies, including those for oil and gas, would be good for American taxpayers and consumers. Okay, so it's actually not universally recognized as good policy. Maybe this is an industry that's on life support and needs the help. Nobody liked the auto bailout, but saving the auto industry was good for the overall U.S. economy. So maybe it's not optimal policy and it's not popular, but it's just one of those things we kind of need to suck it up and do because the oil and gas industries are in such dire straits. Except, well, obviously not. The oil and gas industry is quite literally the most profitable industry in the history of humankind. The big oil companies essentially mint money. In the most recent quarter, the top five oil companies made a combined profit, profit, of $32 billion. Okay. Well, finally, maybe there's just a durable, robust, partisan divide on this issue where people on different sides of the aisle just see the facts of the matter so differently they cannot reconcile them. They can't come to the kind of consensus needed to get it over the hump. Maybe Republicans are just 100% fundamentally opposed to the idea of ending oil subsidies. I will tell you, with $55 oil, we don't need incentives to oil and gas companies to explore. There's plenty of incentive. I voted to wipe out uh, uh, many of the uh, oil company subsidies. They're doing just uh, fine on their own. We simply should not expect taxpayers struggling to pay their energy bills to continue to subsidize the oil industry. Look, I said everything's on the table, and that includes ethanol. Uh, that includes all subsidies. Uh, oil and gas subsidies? On the table. On the table. If, in fact, they are making uh, such enormous profits, then perhaps they don't need the support 
and the uh, tax incentives that are given to them by the American taxpayer, by the United States Congress. Would you be in favor of seeing some of these subsidies that are going to big oil at times of record profits? It's certainly something that we ought to be looking at. Of doing away with these subsidies. We're at a time when, when the federal government's short on revenues. Uh, we need to control spending, but we need to have revenues to keep the government moving. Uh, and they ought to be paying their fair share. All right, so that's not it either. Even President Bush, the quintessential Republican oil man, is on record saying we don't need oil subsidies. In fact, here are the heads of the top five oil companies themselves admitting on tape, under oath, what they think of the oil subsidies. Gentlemen, the president says, and I quote, with $55 oil, we don't need incentives to oil and gas companies to explore. There are plenty of incentives. Now, today, the price of oil is above $55 per barrel. Is the president wrong when he says we don't need incentives for oil and gas exploration? If I could just have a yes or no answer and go right down the road, beginning with you, Mr. Raymond. Is the president wrong? No, and I don't think our companies ask for any incentives for exploration. Sir? Agreed. In my uh, oral comments, I said we do not need, what we do need, though, is access. Just, just a yes or a Access, no. yes. Sir? No. President's uh, correct? He's correct. Sir? Yes, he is. All right, just to recap, this is an unpopular piece of policy. It's economically census. It's aiding an industry that is already one of the most profitable in the world, that the Democratic president is against, that Democrats in Congress are against, and that Republicans in the past have also said they're against. And yet, repealing, well, we can't seem to repeal it. It fails. It fails to pass out of even one chamber of Congress. And not just this year. It fails year after year. Today, when I was Googling around to find articles about this, I kept getting almost identical headlines from previous years. It turns out we go through this almost every single year. In fact, I'm almost positive I actually guest hosted for Rachel on a previous night when the Republicans in Congress had knocked down a bill to repeal oil subsidies. So when I said earlier this was a caper, that this is a true mystery. The mystery, again, is why does this persist? When it's unpopular policy, when it's bad policy, when Democrats hate it, Republicans have in the past supported getting rid of it, why does it persist? And the most plausible way to figure out who done it in this case is just to take a look at who voted for the oil subsidies today and who voted against them, and then look at how much money those two groups got from big oil. 51 members of the Senate, mostly Democrats, voted against the oil industry today. They voted to repeal the oil subsidies, and collectively they've received about $5 million in campaign contributions from big oil. The 47 senators who voted to protect the oil industry subsidies today, they got this much money from big oil. Nearly $25 million. This were a game of Clue, I think we've just solved the mystery. It was big oil with the wallet in the cloakroom. You see, the oil industry is a very concentrated industry. There aren't a lot of mom-and-pop oil companies around. I mean, there are some, but it's mainly the top five oil companies, at least here domestically. Some of the most recent data available shows that in the United States, the top five oil companies control over half the domestic oil refinery capacity. It's not a mon monopolistic market. It's what economists would call an oligopolistic market. It's a concentrated market. When Teddy Roosevelt, back in the Gilded Age, started going around advancing the idea of breaking up oligopolistic markets and monopolies, 
He wasn't concerned primarily with the thing that we tend to talk about and obsess over now, which is the way that those kind of market concentration affects consumer prices. No. What Teddy Roosevelt worried about back when he was working on concentrated economic power is the way that that concentrated economic power would skew the political system. If our political institutions were perfect, they would absolutely prevent the political domination of money in any part of our affairs. There are not a few public men who, though they would repel with indignation and offer of a bribe, will give certain corporations special legislative and executive privileges because they have contributed heavily to campaign funds. In other words, Teddy Roosevelt was worried about a result just like what we saw today. Even though we have something that's bad policy, that everyone sort of agrees is bad policy, when it comes down to brass tacks, we can't get rid of it. And why can't we get rid of it? You're looking at it. Teddy Roosevelt's nightmare come true. Last year, when Republican Representative Paul Ryan proposed a budget he said would reduce deficits, it set the austerity-smitten media swooning. Few pointed out that Ryan's proposal was full of dubious assumptions, fuzzy math, and would, in fact, not balance the budget. At the same time, the Congressional Progressive Caucus released its People's Budget to raise taxes on the wealthy, slash military spending, enact a public option in health care, a Wall Street speculation tax, and, unlike Ryan's plan, would actually balance the budget. It got next to no coverage. A year later, it's deja vu. Ryan has a new budget proposal. It's a lot like his last. As economist Dean Baker put it, Ryan did a public service by releasing the budget, quote, by throwing a piece of total garbage on the table and pretending it is a real budget plan, he allowed us to see who in Washington is serious about the budget and who just says things that will push their agenda, close quote. Well, journalists have rushed to cover the garbage. On the other hand, on March 28th, the Progressive Caucus released its new Budget for All plan. The media reaction? A big yawn. We could find no national coverage. There was a good report picked up by the Contra Costa Times and the San Jose Mercury that closed with a quote from Progressive Caucus member Representative Mike Honda. Quote, If people knew what the choices were, I think they'd say... Jesus, the Progressive Caucus budget looks pretty good. Close quote. Sadly, most people never will because the media won't report the choices in the first place. There ain't no reason things are this way. It's how they always been and they intend to stay. I can't explain why we live this way. We do it every day. Preachers on the podium speaking of saints Prophets on the sidewalk begging for change Old ladies laughing from the fire escape Cursing my name I got a basket full of lemons and they all taste the same A window in a pigeon with a broken wing You can spend your whole life working for something Just to have it taken away There is a panic that has set in in Washington 
oh my god, if we don't do anything, which is the normal state of affairs, at the end of this year, a tremendous number of tax cuts are going to go into effect. I'm sorry, tax increases are going to go into effect and spending cuts are going to go into effect, including defense cuts, right? Now, would that help the deficit? It would help it tremendously. Now, does everybody in Washington, the politicians, the media included, uh, always profess that they care about the deficit and how they want a grand bargain or some sort of deal to make sure that we get this budget balanced? Well, fantastic. Then don't do a thing. You know how much of a difference this, this uh, event is going to make? If you don't do anything at all, the spending cuts and the tax increases that go into effect at the end of the year, it would make a $7.5 trillion difference. So our budget would almost magically be solved. And all we need to do is just hold on. Now, is there downsides? Of course there are. And some of the tax increases are, go towards the middle class. And I'm worried about it. And some of them hit me. I just talked to my accountant because tax season is around the corner. I just talked to him. And as I'm reading this list, I get body blow after body blow on some of the exemptions that we would use, the brackets going up, etc. But I am one of about seven people in the country who actually care about the deficit, who aren't liars like the Republicans who say, oh my God, I care so much about the deficit. So here's my bill that increases deficit because I have such giant tax cuts for the rich. Because I don't really care about the deficit, all I want is to serve the rich. And the Democrats who say, ah, oh, the deficits aren't important. I actually think they are. So I'm willing to absorb the body blows in those tax increases. And I'm willing to say, hey, you know what? Even we should let the Bush tax cuts expire, not just for the rich, but for everybody. Because this would actually help our deficit tremendously. And it would put us on a great economic footing. Now, of course, Washington says, oh, it, no way, no way, no way. You know what they're calling this? They have a word for it now. Tax-mageddon, like as an Armageddon. But like, oh my God, taxes would increase so much, it's Armageddon, oh my God, the rich would get hurt. Now the excuse is given by one and all, but let me just quote Ezra Klein here. And he doesn't say this as an excuse, he says it with a straight face. Quote, that would be on the one hand, solve our deficit problem, it would also trash our recovery. Wrong again, Bob. Now, Ezra's a smart guy, but I totally disagree with him, and I totally disagree with conventional wisdom as usual here. I don't think it would hurt our recovery. Now, why? Because the conventional wisdom is, oh my God, tax cuts create economic boom. Except that's not true. It's never been true. It hasn't been true the last 30 years. Oh no, over the last 10 years, we had giant tax cuts, not just for the rich, but for everybody. And did it create jobs? No, it didn't. Through the first year of Obama, which includes Bush's uh, recession, we actually lost jobs over that nine-year period. Those giant tax cuts, and we lost jobs. Tax cuts don't create jobs. Actually, oftentimes, tax increases create jobs. Now, again, everybody in Washington is like, no, don't tell Americans the reality. No, we need our tax cuts. But look, I'll give you one easy example. During the eight years of, uh, under Clinton, we raised taxes. We did, no question about it, raised taxes. What happened? 23 million jobs added. So when they tell you that these tax cuts for the rich work, or for the entire economy, it's not true. Actually, tax increases lead to more jobs, and I can tell you why, too. What happens is, if you have to pay more in taxes, whether you're a business or you're an individual, you think, nah, I'd rather invest the money rather than pay the taxes right now. 
So for example, if you're a small business like we are at the Young Turks, you go, do I want to pay a higher tax rate? Or would I rather hire someone new and hence spend the money and then grow my business and then pay taxes at a later time? That's what I would rather do as a smart businessman. It's unquestionably true. Okay, so in a lot of ways, those higher taxes actually lead to creating more jobs and stimulating the economy. Now, that's what Washington will never tell you because they're greedy. And those rich, they want their tax cuts. So this so-called tax Mageddon would be terrific. And then how about the spending cuts? Some of them are painful, no question about that. And some of the tax increases are painful. But that's what we were supposed to get with the grand bargain, right? That's the deal where, you know what, some things that you really like, like uh, education tax credits, get hurt. I get it. I, that hurts uh, the middle class, too. It doesn't come without pain, but that's how you're going to balance the budget. But even on the spending cuts, half of them come from the military, and they tell us that would hurt our economy. What a joke. All that defense spending is some of the most wasteful spending there is, and as it, re as it relates to other ways of spending, it actually adds very little to the economy. So this is actually probably the most efficient way that we can balance the budget and not hurt the economy, maybe even help the economy. And all we have to do is nothing. Unfortunately, all Washington finally has risen from their slumber, and they're like, oh my God, we must act now. Why? Because the rich must be protected, and no way will we ever balance the budget, because both the Democrats and the Republicans don't give a damn about that. Thanks for listening, everyone. So I wanted to introduce the, the voicemails today. We have three new messages from three more straight white males talking about straight white male privilege. And I think that they make absolutely brilliant points, are incredibly nuanced. And, and I think that I may agree with essentially everything that you're about to hear. So uh, I highly recommend you check these out. And here they are. Hi, this is Dirk. I'm calling from San Francisco, and I just listened to your most recent episode and wanted to call in and respond to the voicemail and the email that you've received regarding white male privilege. Um, as someone who enjoys both of those privileges myself, I can relate on some level, I think, to both of the listeners who responded. And I think there are a couple things going on. The first is one that you touched on in a little bit, which is just this idea that, well, I didn't really do anything to be privileged. I didn't ask to be privileged. And in some way, the suggestion that somebody is privileged calls into question what it is that they have, where they've gotten in their life, and whether or not they really deserve it. And this is something that threatens people. And it is almost an accusation. If you are privileged, it raises the question or the possibility that if you weren't privileged, you might not be who you are or have gotten where you are. And that's a question that a lot of people don't really want to ask themselves, regardless of what situation they're in or what privilege they're born with. So there is that kind of gut response to it. And then the other thing that seems to be going on, and I think this plays into it, is just this idea that if you are white, if you are male, you kind of think of yourself as being at the center, as the default. And you know, this is really what the 
essence of privilege is, is that as particularly as white males, straight white males, we get to kind of think of ourselves as being what is normal and everything that is not like us is other. And so in terms of privilege, it's like, well, you know, the poverty rate, <laughs> we don't think about it in terms of, of being, um, you know, we have a financial advantage because we're normal. As if you are a person of color, the poverty rate happens to be higher, right, because you're other and you're on the outside. And of course, you know, the actual cases, if you look at the population worldwide, you know, white males are in no way the norm. We are the exception. So, you know, really, I think the first step t towards recognizing privilege, at least for me, was to stop thinking of myself as the default or the norm and seeing everything uh, that happened to me as kind of being the exception as opposed to what is normal. So the caller who called in and said, well, you know, it's an injustice that people of color get pulled over more often and we should try to right that injustice. That's great, but you also have to recognize that any injustice that exists against someone who is not like you is in some way, it, it creates an advantage, right? So there, if there's an unfairness or an injustice, it means that one person or particular group has an advantage over another. And if somebody is disadvantaged, then you are advantaged in comparison. It's, it's a tough thing to deal with, and uh, I'm interested in hearing where the conversation goes. So thanks for bringing it up, and thanks for doing what you do. Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Jesse in Tokyo once again. I just wanted to call because I think, and I, I've thought about, I am a uh, heterosexual white male, so I am in that class of the most privileged, I suppose. And I think the problem that people are missing about calling someone privileged is the fact that when you call someone privileged, it's not what feels bad about somebody calling you privileged is it kind of has an underlying message, which is you didn't earn whatever place you have in society. So if you tell a, a, a heterosexual white male who's, even if it's not, you know, a doctor, if it's someone who, who works, you know, who's a waiter or something, you know, regular blue collar job, if you tell them, hey, you're privileged, you're kind of insinuating the only way you got to your spot in life was because of your privilege, which isn't necessarily true, but it, it very well could be. I mean, even if you're, you know, uh, there's studies about people with uh, black sounding names not getting jobs over the phone. If you just use uh, a name that sounds like a black person's name versus a traditionally Anglo name, you, you, you get a job less time, uh, less frequently. So anyway, I'm getting off topic, but the point is, when you call someone privileged, it feels like you're saying you didn't earn your spot in life, whatever that spot is. Anyway, that's my two cents. Uh, love the show. Have a good day. Jay, this is Dave from Olympia, Washington. Several voicemails at the end of your most recent episode have inspired me to call in. Doug, um wanted to call in about privilege and felt the need to express that he had never personally exploited the queer community or, or women. He doesn't see himself as part of that white, straight, male power structure, even though he's white and straight and male. 
but, but the fact is, based on the evidence in our society, white, straight males get benefit in American society. Now, I can understand the threat if, if you're white and straight, and someone points out that white, straight males get benefits, it feels like an attack. And here's where I get to my advice. It's just not about you. You need to get past that and not let your ego go. You're not all important. Move on. Whenever you personalize a conflict, whenever you get involved as I am involved in this conflict, you always escalate that conflict. Because nobody likes to be attacked. Nobody likes to feel attacked. If you want a positive outcome, you have to check your yourself at the door. Everything you said, it's not about you. And if you have to bring it in, if you have to defend that you weren't involved in creating the privilege or injustice, those things aren't helpful. They don't advance you toward a productive outcome to your to your conflict. I, I guess at the bottom line, what I'm saying. If you're going to be an ally, be an ally. If the only way you can be an ally is if you put conditions on it that the, you know, that the oppressed group somehow validate your personal non-involvement in creating the oppression or the injustice, that's better than nothing, I guess. But it's, it's going to create conflict. And it's going to be needless, pointless, not productive conflict that could have been avoided. Thanks to all those who called in to leave a voicemail. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So as I mentioned, I think I agreed with essentially everything that was said in those voicemails. Uh, you know, I, I asked for people with a little bit more insight on the subject to, to call in, and I was not the least bit disappointed. Uh, so thanks to those who, who called in. I thought they were great points, and I sort of don't have much to add uh, to what you just heard. And and, uh, you know, besides the fact that I don't have time to add it anyways. So I'm just going to thank a couple members before I go. Elizabeth B. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on March 11th. 2011 and has stuck with the show since then and Maureen P signed up for a leftist yearly membership on March 4th and has stuck with the show since then as well so huge thanks to Maureen and Elizabeth and all the members and donors who helped keep the show going I could not do it without you guys of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks online. That can be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.